Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello and welcome to the Church Times book club podcast. I'm Francis Martin and I'm here with author Colin Thubrin to discuss his novel Night of Fire, which is this month's pick for the Church Times Book Club. Colin, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. Could you start by giving us a, a brief sort of synopsis, perhaps, of the novel? I'll try. It's a complex novel um, that doesn't yield very easily to simple synopsis because it's broken into several different parts. Basically, it appears at least to be about a, a landlord of a multiple occupation dwelling which is caught fire and it's as if this building encloses uh, six or seven different lives. The landlord is up on at the top of the house, doesn't realise that it has actually caught fire and he's observing the stars and thinking a bit about his past life playing old cine films in the room below and for the moment unconscious that he's going to die. And the rest of the novel is broken into different sections of different personalities, different people who are, if you like, inhabitants of the house. The first is a priest or a a seminarian who slowly loses his faith. Um, This passes through perhaps the the greatest number of transformations of the various characters in the house. Um, The priest goes first to Mount Athos, um, the Greek Orthodox peninsula, which is so fervent and exclusive. He goes with one or two of his seminarian friends, and it becomes apparent that um, one of them is attracted to the other and feeling a, a terrible guilt about it. And later he commits suicide. And then the remaining principal protagonist of this piece um, goes with his friend to a refugee camp, almost in penance, a refugee camp in in Africa, where he feels he um, betrays the Rwandan woman who he's very much attracted to and has to leave her behind um, when there's an invasion, if you like, of Hutu tribesmen who may even kill her. This sounds very complicated, um, but it's really about a man who feels he is slowly losing his faith and is going through successive betrayals. The second element is a neurosurgeon, the opposite of this man, um, somebody who believes in the rationality of human life and that it is largely explained um, by the human brain, if you like, that can alter consciousness, um, that can, in the case of one of his patients, seem to eliminate God even, or a fervent belief. So it sets up a lot of challenging concepts to, again, a, a man who, whose own belief in neuroscience is slightly shaken. The third person in this house, if you like, is a woman, a naturalist. She a, has a, a passion for lepidoptery, for butterflies, and for natural life, um, has a, a, a lesbian relationship uh, that um, resonates a little with other parts of the book. The next inhabitant is a photographer who has fantasies, really, about um, himself, the women he loves, 
and uh, eventually again is somebody who uh, betrays those who to whom he's potentially attracted. The penultimate um, character is a schoolboy um, or somebody who is remembering his schoolboy days. Again, uh, acts of betrayal and uh, a failure to confront reality. And finally, um, a man I call the traveller um, who goes um, most potently to India, to Varanasi, um, where the burning gods are, and to that Buddhist concept of extinction in death and transmigration. And finally, there's a section on the landlord who, to whom we return, and it becomes apparent before each of these characters dies um, in the fire that they are all interconnected in some way. They may even be the same person. They may be the landlord. Um, these things are left a little inconclusive. But there are cross-references in all of them to one another. Um, sometimes uh, one character will dream the life of another. At other times um, there will simply be references maybe to objects um, in their apartments that don't belong to them or seem not to or seem to belong to one of the others again and again there are if one's attentive to them there are elements that are not exclusive to each character but also belong to one or even all of the rest so i hope at the end there's a sense that the novel is much more perhaps thought-provoking than it might appear to start with about matters of where reality really exists, um, classically in the first two sections, whether it is in, in faith or in reason, an ancient debate. And uh, these things are played out eventually in the death and apparent extinction of all the characters in The Landlord. It sounds rather grim, but I hope it doesn't. Um, it, it, it doesn't really play out that way. It, it more, I think, leaves question marks than answers. Speaking of the structure of the book, one of the sort of um, notable techniques you use is a shift into from the third person into the first person within each narrative, and it comes at a slightly different moment within each of the um, stories. Let's say, is that something you were very conscious of of a, trying to do, and? At what point did you sort of feel that that was the moment to make the to make the move? I was conscious of it, and the moment I suppose that immediately presented itself was that where there's less sort of memory and contemplation and more actual exact action, and when things become more more vital and uh, more present, uh, then I move into the first person. Uh, that's rather a loose way of putting it, and it, it, it's done by more by instinct than by working it out. There would come a time during each of these narratives when I felt it was important to give them a sort of vivid actuality uh, rather than something perhaps that's happened in the character's past um, or something that they are um, reminiscing about uh, or something that is more contemplative perhaps. Mm. In the priest's narrative, that shift occurs quite quickly compared to some of the others. 
what do you think that betokens? <laughs> um, you know, these things are in some ways as mysterious to the author as they are to the mm. reader. Um, you do things out of a, a, a sort of instinct. And I'm not quite sure, but in the priest's narrative, there are a number of different unsettling dramas which take place. There's a suicide. Um, there's a man who rejects God openly and wants to leave the seminary, um, which shakes the whole institution. There's a, the hint of a, a, a homosexual um, attraction, which is rejected. And finally, in the refugee camp, um, there's the threat of invasion. And so all these things are, I hope, vivid and important within the narrative, so that it seemed more urgent, perhaps, in this first excerpt, to push it into the present tense. I think it's probably fair to say that you are perhaps slightly better known or more widely known as a travel writer or for your travel writing than for your novels. Yes. But I've noticed in a couple of your travel books, you, you on very rare occasions, you, you use a shift into the first person with someone you've encountered. To what extent do you feel that the processes of writing a travel book and writing a novel for you overlap or are they very distinct in your in your mind they're distinct in my mind um i don't know the readers i think um find some overlap or, or some fusion of interests perhaps that i focus on in travel books that are present in the novels as well but they seem to come to for me to from very different parts of me the travel books are all about fascination with an outside world that I do quite a lot of research on, and the experience is all with the immediacy of travel. Um, it depends so much on what happens, which is not always, um, or very rarely, one's own choice. Things happen by chance in travel books. You're very dependent on another culture, how you're received, how a journey goes. And the whole feeling that I have is about, it's not, and people say my travel books are a little bit impersonal or I'm quite shadowy as a travelling figure within the narrative um, and I think that's true my focus and fascination has always been not on myself in in travelling but on the culture that I'm uh, meeting whereas um, with fiction I tend to go more instinctively back into my own psyche if you like my own mind thoughts past feelings um, that's where fiction begins for me. It's not obviously with some plot or something exterior to myself. It's as if I've rather folded back into my own inner world, if you like, to produce fiction. And that's a very different feeling from the travel books. It's as if when I'm writing a travel book, which may take three or four years, because I have to reacquaint myself with the language usually, which I speak very badly, Russian or Mandarin. Um, I have to do the research, I have to do the journey. And during those four years, I suppose I haven't thought in novelistic terms about my own inner life, um, whatever that means. And so when I revisit it after the end of a travel book and thinking about a novel, it's as if there's a sort of fallow field there that's been uninvestigated, if you like, or uninterrogated for three or four years. And uh, this is putting it rather too simply. And it's from there that a novel comes. 
And then a novel may take maybe much less time than a travel book, perhaps a year and a half, only two years. And then I sicken myself and want to go go out into the world and see some part of Asia, usually. So there's this pendulum in all my work between the fiction and the travel. And if I had to write one travel book after another, I think I would tire. I would begin to have to search the globe as to where I should go. I don't like that very conscious process. I usually find a, a travel destination has asserted itself quite early as somewhere that I naturally want to go to without having to work at it. And if I had to write fiction, like one novel after another, I think similarly my sense of my material would start to wear thin. I like to have the break between the two genres. The priest's narrative and the neurosurgeon's narrative, as you've already mentioned, seem to offer, um, in very simplistic terms, two possible explanations for something, faith perhaps, or identity, ideas of the self, and no clear answer emerges from that, um, but they both sort of playing with those same ideas. Um, I wonder if that's something that's always fascinated you, um, and perhaps if you could just read a, a short passage from the neurosurgeon's um, account that, that perhaps bears on that. Yes, I, it of course, the concept of the self has fascinated me, and particularly the, well, some theories of self, certainly in neuroscience, make the self infinitely more complex and more controversial than others. Here's, for instance, a, a passage from a neurosurgeon, a neurosurgeon's reflections on it, which simply says, there's a theory that the sequential narrative which the brain offers up to us giving the impression of a coherent self, emerges from a babble of competing soliloquies in our neural channels. These voices are constantly supplanting and interrupting one another, hence the haphazard ways we think. So the self is an illusion. That, I think, answers to quite a lot of my own feelings about um, about my own self um, and the way that conceivably the brain, um, which gives, of course, the illusion of a coherent person, um, may in fact be something much more in intricate and in some ways, I suppose, less less hopeful from a Christian perspective um, that, that the, the self is a, a product of, of an organism, the brain, whose main purpose is not to uh, supply truth, but to survive. Um, the brain is an organ for the the survival of the the human organism in which it's planted. So it it may be supplying data or entertaining data which are simply most uh, most appropriate for its own survival, for the organism survival. That's rather a complex way of of saying that the brain is unreliable. You know, the surgeon who I posit in this book is a rationalist and in many ways would like to believe that all human experience can be explained neurologically, that you alter the brain and you alter the experience. Um, but that, of course, gives rise to an awful lot of questions when one finds that the surgeon is actually altering memory 
and the two principal patients he has. One of the patients wishes to preserve her memory because it's a memory of a, a loved one. The other is certain that um, he has uh, the answers. He's, he's um, fervently, I suppose, Christian in a way, and he's fervently uh, believing in a God. And that, disturbingly, that perception and conviction is eliminated by the surgical process which has to take place because of his epilepsy. And that's always fascinated me, that the brain, if you meddle in the brain with the organ called the hippocampus, which is the storehouse, if you like, of memory, the channel of memory, um, that you can alter somebody's entire perception of the world, um, which is very disturbing, I think, and disturbing to people of faith or to any people that um, we are so dependent on this very little known organ we call the brain. Um, we just don't know um, whether what the neural channels are doing to us. And those questions seem infinitely interesting to me, but also disturbing. You spoke about the amount of research that goes into one of your travel books, but it seems like a lot of research must have gone into this novel as well, with the the account of neurosurgery, for example, and, and technical aspects of it. Is that something that you did for this novel? Yes, yes, it, it, it was. Um, I mean, I've always been interested in it and read around it, but I didn't have the actual experience of watching um, such an operation. But I found a very indulgent neurosurgeon um, who allowed me to actually witness what the process was of operating on patients for epilepsy, basically, which means um, meddling, if you like, or intruding on areas of the brain in order to cure epilepsy, um, uh, basically uh, sclerosis of the hippocampus. That's basically cutting away um, parts of an organ that are also responsible for memory, so that uh, memory and, in a way, personality, so that the character who's as a, an epileptic patient, um, convinced of God in a sort of manic way, becomes cynical after the operation. Um, and the woman who wishes to retain the memory of a, an illicit loved one um, becomes, it seems, rather indif she retains the memory, but the feeling around the memory um, begins to, uh, has, has faded after the operation. So in both cases, the operation has had an effect that struggle between belief and scepticism sort of plays out a little bit in the priest story and brings within it ideas of dogmatism as well. You've, the, the character you mentioned, the sort of older, well, he seems older yeah. at any rate, uh, within, the, within the seminary is very dogmatic and our narrator is, is much uh, more doubtful, but still has perhaps one could say quite an instinct towards faith and an attraction to elements of, of faith. Do you think something of that attitude is is necessary for any author, actually? The idea that to, to be able to have a, an instinct towards understanding where people are coming from, from all sides, regardless of, of what you yourself might believe or not believe? Yes, I do. I, I think 
it's classically said, you know, you should be open to all faiths, um, all feelings, <laughs> um, and even be able to entertain an understanding of appalling criminal behavior, um, that the author's mind should and imagination um, should be flexible enough for, um, of a certain type um, that can entertain um, almost any possibility. I do think so. I, I think uh, to write a novel which is purely one of conviction, whether it's in neuroscience or in faith, um, would be an impoverishment. Do you think your travel experiences help you to, to do that? Yes, I, I think they should. Um, I hope they do, um, because you meet people of so many different um, attitudes and convictions and religious faiths, particularly traveling in Asia, as I mainly do, um, that you are confronted by people who feel very differently from you. And that is always an education, even if you've argued with them, um, even if you think uh, they're mistaken and they think you're mistaken, and you, you feel quite convinced of it, it still opens you up to different possibilities. I think it should have helped over the course of so many years of travelling. But um, I, I think, too, that everyone has to be careful. Um, it can sometimes um, aggravate and harden you, too. The old traveller writer Freya Stark was once asked whether travel broadened the mind, and she simply said no, <laughs> by which she meant, I think, that if you travel with certain convictions, they'll only be reinforced um, by what you find if you're not careful. I think I tend to be more, more, more woolly and flexible and try to attempt to leave myself behind when I'm traveling. It's not possible, of course. It's a dangerous thing to imagine that you've done um, because you haven't. You come from a certain culture and you're so imbued with it in your in your psyche, in your use of language, um, both on the page and in speaking, um, you're so imbued with your own culture that it's very um, dangerous to imagine that you leave behind your your colonial history, if you like. Um, and so uh, you are travelling with, with yourself. But I like the sort of exercise of trying to clear one's mind of potential prejudice, if you can, in, in indulging, speaking with other people, or even in witnessing other faith, uh, other faiths say how people attend a mosque or a synagogue uh, or an Orthodox church say, or how um, Hindus or Buddhists um, will behave in a temple, um, just to witness that, and the extreme differences in how devotion is exemplified how people are behaving um, is uh, is very challenging and um, they, uh, uh, it, it um, incites your imagination you are, you are forced to think differently about faith certainly when you see uh, an orthodox worshiper kissing an icon say or a Hindu uh, laying a, a wreath in front of the god Ganesh um, what that tells you about in different casts of mind. In the traveller's narrative, there's a section where he's in Jerusalem and he's being shown the false 
tomb of Christ. And the line goes, the long disowned Christian in him rose in revulsion. Then in the same paragraph, he goes looking around Jerusalem for slabs of pavement that might have been trodden on by Jesus or disciples and describes him bending down to touch them like a believer. That mix, really, of, of, of the way of going around things, is that something that you can relate to? Yes, absolutely to that. It probably was even literally my own experience because I've been to Jerusalem several times. Um, the fact that the traveller is saying the long disowned um, Christian raised in revulsion, um, even the revulsion suggests that there's some um, investment in believing that it's true, wanting that tomb to be true, um, and regretting that it's not and feeling a, a, a sort of uh, a disgust in a way, um, which is much stronger than that of a, a real atheist who probably wouldn't really feel anything very much. But this man's feeling some almost sort of visceral um, hurt. And with the touching of stones of those sort of magic places almost where you know that Jesus, uh, along with the disciples and so on, must have trodden. And there are such stones in Jerusalem, particularly uh, around the temple area, where you absolutely know uh, it's a very strange feeling. Not that just, you know, 2,000 years ago um, this happened, um, but these figures in this man's case, because he's his Christianity has been repudiated, but if you like a, a childhood or a young man's repudiated Christianity, is something that still has to linger. Um, you may It may have been repudiated rationally, if you like, with the brain, but with something else clings on, and that's what that suggests, that passage, that there's still... Uh, uh, some kind of magic in those stones. The range of places of worship that feature in the novel is is quite vast, really. We, you've mentioned the seminary in Mount Athos. In the refugee camp, there's a sort of ancestral shrine, but then there's a, a Buddhist monastery, a Hindu temple, a small chapel on the Dorset headland uh, makes an appearance. Was that something that you were conscious of as you were writing the novel, that you were bringing all these places? And I wonder also to, to what extent, as you mentioned with Jerusalem, these places are directly drawn from your own encounters and experience. They are drawn from my own experience, I think, all of them except, I think, the temple in the refugee camp, which I only heard about, or the shrine. Otherwise, yes, there's all, even the Dorset Chapel, it comes from one on St. Alstom's head, headland there on the Purbeck coast. They're, they're all experienced. And I, I like the way that such places resonate in in belief, people's attitudes to them, experience of them. They, they have their place, places along with human beings in that way. Speaking of Dorset, which is where I come from, you, in one of your other novels, Distance, um, published uh, a, a few years before Night of Fire, I think, mm. it follows the, the story of a man suffering from amnesia. And he is, if not quite an atheist, is at least 
very much agnostic, but he accepts an invitation to visit a, a friary from a, an acquaintance of his who has become quite a uh, ardent convert. And it's there that his memory starts to return, which is really a, a, a very important moment in the book in that it sort of shifts from, the, from his complete lack of understanding of, of, of what's happened in the last year or so to recovering that. Again, is that something that is just sort of a propitious place to, to enact that? Or is there some sort of deeper significance, do you think, to, to such places, monasteries, friaries, being a place where people can, in a sense, find themselves, regardless of their faith? I'm not sure. I think, once again, uh, that it was a sort of instinct rather than a, a rational decision that his memory should start to return in that particular place because he finds it mainly alienating. I would expect, one would, that quietude might be more conducive, which of course is a, the monastic quietude in that, day, that uh, case. Um, that sort of calm might be more conducive to memory returning. But I don't know. I know too little about um, that sort of post-traumatic amnesia, I suppose it's called, um, to be certain. But that's where it seemed reasonable to place it within the novel. Speaking of calm and quiet, how do you find calm and quiet to, to write? It's increasingly difficult, I find. I mean, here, one's lucky. It's a, usually a quiet place, um, a beautiful garden behind, um, a very understanding wife, and it should be fine. And I've managed so far um, to write most of my recent books here, here in London. But I used to go to Wales, which was in a way perfect. Um, I was lent a cottage by the publisher John Murray in the Black Mountains. And that had no connection anywhere, no internet, no telephone, um, no, nothing. And I'd arrive, and for the first few hours I'd think, you know, why has nobody been in touch with me? What about all that agitation you have in the city? Then I'd realise nobody can get in touch, and I can't get in touch, then it's wonderful. And you'd sink into another pace of mental life, and everything became calmer. Um, it was much more possible to settle down as I do for very long days of writing, it sounds a little mad, you know, I do 12, 14 hour days, even if I was hours, if I was really um, keyed up, uh, which sounds crazy, I'm not sure I could quite do it now. I've increasingly found I can write in London, but the instinct, unfortunately, is to turn on the computer, and I write longhand, but on the computer, of course, is, is the dreaded email, which piles up much more than it used to. And I think with books in the future, I would like to start them in Wales, I think, get them evolved in complete solitude. And then once they're sort of beginning to be in place, to continue them in London by blocking off email with an away from mail message, and simply having the discipline to be uh, alone in a study, which, which I need to do for many hours because it takes me long to get started again each day. Um, once I'm, as it were, feeling that, feeling it's really like you feel inside the work or outside, once I'm sort of inside, I'm 
usually fairly fairly hard to extract from it. So it has to be a major interruption to take me away. The way you describe inhabiting the novel reminds me a little of one of the characters in the photographer's uh, story, the actress who struggles at times to really inhabit the character. But once she does, the character almost sort of becomes part of her, um, uh, something of a... um, analogous perhaps to, to, to the way that various different strands of character and self sort of seem to interweave in the novel. Um, do you think there is something of, of being an actor about writing novels and even perhaps travel books at times? I hadn't thought it. Um, I think as you're actually writing it, whether it's a, a, even writing oneself in the first person, in a travel book um, or or in a novel, that there's a there's an act in the writing of it that is immediately separate. It separates you from yourself. Um, it's about you. Um, it's as you felt and spoke. I'm talking of travel books and behaved in a certain place, but in the mere act of writing, it it becomes separate. It's partly because it's got to be. Um, readable and literary, if you like, or literature. Sounds a, it's a bit of a dirty word, I think, now, to talk about being things being literary. But it, it does have to take a certain shape which will be attractive to a reader. And you can't escape that. And immediately there are things that happen in travel, um, a vast amount that you exclude, for instance, it can't be simply a dull narrative of everything, even if you could remember everything, one thing after another. So that, that act of exclusion is an act of shaping, um, and the narrative takes place. And the more you do that, the further away you yourself become from the person on the page. So always there's, if you like, it is a slightly actually business that is... Um, impossible, I think, I find impossible, to to bridge the gap, literally, so that the book never seems to be quite yourself. With fiction, of course, it's different, because you're writing about somebody else anyway, supposedly. But that, too, is in as much as it's reflecting your own experience. That's why I think where the feeling of actor starts to, to kick in. Um, if it's if it's your reflected your own experiences reflected in a novel, then of, of course you're at liberty. It's much easier to um, to accept that this text is not you because it's not. It is in a certain sense reflective of all things about you, inescapable things. But you don't have that trouble that I find in a travel book of holding on, if you like. To, to the truth of what happened. I wonder whether you have any recommendations uh, of perhaps something that you've read recently that you think Church Times readers might be interested in. There's a very interesting book by a woman called Cal Flynn, which was published last year, called Islands of Abandonment. And this was about um, places that human beings have given up or been driven out of and how nature returns um, and how quickly and richly nature will take over 
if it's left to its own devices. And it's a rather wonderful book, I think, in a way. It's not anti-ecological. It's not saying, uh, don't worry about the planet. It's saying that the planet, without human interference, can replenish itself. That, that uh, book by Cal Flynn called Islands of Abandonment, I would recommend to anybody. Thank you very much. This has been the Church Times uh, Book Club podcast with Colin Thubrin talking about his novel Night of Fire. You can read my introductory essay to Night of Fire and some questions for discussion in the Church Times in August. And a link to that article should be available uh, on whatever platform you're just about to finish listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.